Hi, my name is Sam Lee. I'm the president and CEO of North Isle Copper and Gold. Very happy to tell the story today. Uh, update. Uh, we uh, just as a reminder, we have a very large uh, copper gold porphyry system uh, that has been defined by a preliminary economic assessment, $1.1 billion MPV at $3.25 copper, it's approximately 153 million pounds of copper equivalent uh, production a year for 22 years, a very large project. Um, this is really the un underpinning the valuation of a very large 50 kilometer system uh, for which today I'm very happy to provide an update uh, on our high grade uh, gold zone, just two kilometers north of our property um, in British Columbia. Today, I'm also joined uh, with Mike Gentile, who is a strategic investor, and I'm happy to say has built his position up to a 9.9% uh, interest on a partially diluted basis. Uh, and uh, he will be here uh, joining me and talking about the uh, investment proposition and opportunity ahead of us. Sam, Mike, um, thanks for coming back. We've had, we've had both of you on before, Sam, um, last September, and we saw the headlines. We thought we'd give you a call, and you kindly brought Mike along, so that's good news. Um, so, Mike, I'm going to start with you, because I've, I've got to. The, the gold market's gone a little bit crazy overnight, over, uh, at, what, 2050 at one point? What's going on? Yeah, not, that's not the only market going crazy, uh, Matthew. A lot of commodity markets are going crazy right now. But um, on the gold side in particular, as an area you know that I know very well, I've been investing heavily in for, for many years now, um, I've been saying publicly before the war in Ukraine, before all this, the stock market started rolling over in January, the Fed was going to have a very hard time raising rates substantially. You know, they've been telegraphing. The market got to, I think, seven rate hikes was the Fed futures pricing in at one point before the war broke out. I was saying one, two, or three was going to be tough. Uh, I think obviously the gold price is reacting to the war in Ukraine and a flight to safety, but there's also an underbid, I think it's much as a much stronger undercurrent for gold. It's actually structurally sustainable or longer is that these spikes you're seeing in commodities and this more supply chain and commodity issues we're going to see going forward, regardless of how long it takes to resolve the conflict in Ukraine, is going to create more inflation. And so if you look at the price of oil, every $10 increase in the price of oil is equivalent to about 25 basis point rate hike increase. So oil's gone up 50 bucks in the last two months. If you've had an effective 125 basis point rate increase already slapping the consumer's face due to the price of oil. So now the Fed's meeting next week, they were talking tough, talking very hawkish up until recently. Now they're faced with an even bigger dilemma they had before. You, you've got a consumer that's going to be facing some serious pain from these, price, these commodity price increases right now in real time. And the Fed's going to be aggressively or trying to aggressively hike rates. So my, my call is that you can't do that both at the same time without engineering a recession very, very quickly in the economy. So I think the Fed's going to have to back down. They may go ahead with their rate hike in March for, you know, this to say they did it. But it'd be very hard for them to get anywhere close to the seven hikes they thought they'd do two months ago and even five hikes they think they're going to do today. I think that's, those rights are going to be, have to be curtailed. And that's where gold is either sniffing a recession, sniffing a slowdown, or sniffing a, a dramatic decrease in the hawkishness of the Fed, or the Fed continues to go aggressively on this path and the gold price is sniffing a recession, which is, you know, would be very bullish for gold because you'd have to come back with some stimulus and reverse course very quickly. So I think that's what gold's sniffing out. The other commodities are all related to supply disruptions and, you know, nickel, palladium, plant. that's all more of a guess on how long the sanctions last and how long the disruption lasts. But gold, I think, is sniffing something bigger here in terms of a, a macro unwind of the, of the hawkishness. There's blood in the water. But what's, what's it, what's it going to do for retail investors versus institutional investors? Because I'm, I'm intrigued by the comments with regards to uh, in, inflation and, and increasing costs across the board. It's going to affect um, disposable income, discretionary spend. Do people get brave and 
invest or should they be cashing up? Look, I think it's, it's there's a lot of rotation going on in the market right now too, right? We haven't talked about Bitcoin, which is one of my uh, favorite other topics to talk about where, you know, Bitcoin was positioned as gold 2.0 for such a long time. And, you know, Bitcoin has proven to be anything but a store of value or a flight to safety and when, when you really needed it, right? So Bitcoin started falling, remind your viewers, Bitcoin started falling in January well before the war broke out. As soon as the market started rolling over, Bitcoin started acting like a four-time levered ETF. So that So the Bitcoin you know, the emperor has no clothes kind of has had to happened here in terms of the, the mandate for Bitcoin. So that's helping gold as well. Uh, in terms of your question on the consumer side of things, I think it's very difficult. I think I think we're moving very close. The recession probabilities in my mind are increasing by the day. Every day this goes on, it's going to be more and more difficult. So you're seeing investors rotating out of the high flying sectors like tech, stocks trading at 60 times sales, selling their Bitcoin and rotating into, the, let's be honest, very unloved corner of the market, which was gold and precious metals. It was basically no ownership in this sector up until two, three months ago. So that that's a rotation you're going to see. And then depending on how aggressive the Fed gets, my call in the market or what investors are going to do is depending how how long is the Fed going to continue to fall through with this hawkish rate hiking bias. If they take it all the way and engineer a recession, I think there'd be a lot of risk to the market. If they start getting a bit more dovish and walking back uh, next week, that could give some cushion to the market to kind of stabilize at these levels. So a lot's going to depend on the Fed. And the other unknowable obviously is the conflict in Ukraine. But the bigger issue to me is the Fed. What is the Fed going to do? How are they going to react to these live price increases you're seeing daily in the face of consumers that can't afford to pay them. I, I'm going to carry on down this conversation because you've, you've invested into this company and I, I want to I hear more about your views about the, the rest of the world um, before I get, you know, get back into, into North Alpha if, if we can. Are you at all concerned that we're going to start seeing bifurcated markets? The geopolitics involved at the moment are um, extreme. You, you obviously Russia-Ukraine situation is is, is interesting enough, and um, how Europe and the US is responding to that um, is muted at the moment. But alliance has been struck out east. Commodities probably heading out east in the, in the shape of gas, fuel, uranium, uh, and, and anything else China wants to buy. What's, what does that do for the institutional side of, of investing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very complex geopolitical web we're building here. I mean, the, the, the Western powers have so, thus far avoided engaging in, in physical warfare. And, and I think war at any time is never a good idea. So I'm thankful for that. But they're basically committing economic warfare. And I may say economic suicide. But what they're doing, I mean, there's a headline today that Biden's talking about cutting off Russian crude. Now, as, as much as people may dislike Russia, what they're doing right now, that is clinically insane. You spent the last five years attacking crude, attacking all oil and gas production domestically, trying to cut that off. And now you're going to cut off one of the largest oil suppliers in the world to your domestic economy. I mean, they're basically asking for $200 crude, right? And if you do that, that is economic suicide, which the economic impacts, physical impacts of war, they're, they're equally terrifying, you know, in terms of the consequences. So bifurcated markets, yes. And even if this conflict is to be resolved, Matthew, I don't see Russia being welcomed back to the commodities trading table with open arms the next day, maybe on the crude side, because it's too painful to ignore uh, from, from an economic standpoint. But you're going to see some real sanctions, difficulty of getting supply, palladium, platinum, nickel, all these commodities that Russia has a big, big grip on oil are going to be structurally restricted. And the flows are going to be, like I said, heading east. And I think the structural prices of commodities coming out of this conflict, regardless of how long it lasts, are going to be higher. Now that you're having these massive spikes, they're going to be unwound, obviously, as the as the fear decreases. but Structurally, we'll be facing major headwinds. And I invested in oil and gas for, for 20 plus years as well. And it's not so simple as waving a magic wand and saying we're going to have LNG on Europe's doorstep tomorrow. These are five to 10 year projects. These are tens of billions of dollars of CapEx. And I still don't see the political will of our leaders to recognize that EV vehicles are great, that green transition is great, but they, they forgot about the bridge. And now the bridge has been blown up and you can't rebuild the bridge in two weeks. So we have a real structural problem. Even if we want to have more gas and oil going to Russia, 
it's not going to happen anytime soon. But isn't it Russia to Europe? I mean, well, no, that, that, that that's I think I think that's it's, it's an important thing to um, to, to talk about because we're seeing uh, Europe's response in terms of their energy security. But it's not going to happen overnight. It can't. I guess that was part of the play. Um, we're seeing food security. We're seeing all sorts of decision making decision making need to be made by politicians for a little bit more long term. Is it going to be therefore a good thing for the North American market in terms of securing supply chains for? Well, let's stick with commodities specifically. Yeah. If you if you wanted to get serious today, which the governments have not been serious in the past, they've been, they've been big on mandates and you know greenhouse gas emissions and accords and all, but they forgot about how we're actually going to have the commodities to supply this. This is a big wake-up call. It's an unfortunate war has to wake them up, but absolutely domestically sourced deposits like North Isle of copper and energy battery metals, nickel, whatever that be in North America. If I was in charge of the, the economy, which I'm not, and the government, which I'm not, I would be advancing permitting, uh, making economic uh, incentives to produce as much as possible, as quickly as possible, ports, logistics, really trying to you know have that energy independence. We talked about oil energy independence, but kind of critical battery metal independence or critical commodity independence locally so that when these disruptions happen in the future, you realize how vulnerable you are when you don't own these commodities or have them. So there's going to be a lot of insourcing, Matthew, I think. And hopefully that breaks the logjam and helping the governments understand that they they can't be positive on battery cars, EV cars, and make permitting impossible domestically for their, for their, their supply chain, right? So you have to have both working together to allow that to work. And so well-situated you know, quality projects like North Isle and others that have in my portfolio that domestic bent should get the recognition from the market and hopefully get the recognition support of governments to allow these projects to move faster than they otherwise would have six weeks ago. That's the that's the back of the mind positive catalyst we could be seeing here. Uh, the commodity markets are giving that price signal saying we need these projects and we need them now, tomorrow. Uh, hopefully the government's going to board understand that it can play a role in, in helping these projects move quickly down the development pipeline. Okay, nice place to kind of segue back into what we came here to talk about, which is obviously North Isle. You recently, or sorry, rather, there was a press release recently about uh, is a, a meaningful investment from, you're already a shareholder, but uh, you and Pierre Baudin were, I think it was at 1.9 million private placement. Um, why yep. did you decide to come in here? We, we've talked previously about some of your other investments. Why have you gone uh, in on this one? Yeah, great question. So Matthew, we, we have talked before in the past, and, and I think I've shared my philosophy with you that I try to find buildable mines, assets that have really good potential to become mines as early on in the valuation you know, life cycle of a company. That's obviously a lot easier in a bear market. So my hunting ground was very fertile the last three or four years. Uh, and so I try to focus then, if I can find a company with a 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar market cap, that I have high conviction has potential to become a mine. And those are the assets that go to 500 million, a billion, billion plus kind of market cap over time. That's where I focus my attention on. So North Isle was an early investor in the company a year and a half ago when Sam came in. I really liked the expiration upside. At the time, copper was $3. So a big billion dollar core free project was unlikely to be developed at that time. But what attracted me was the expiration upside, that they had a good PEA, a solid project that you would not build at $3 copper, but at $4 copper, you likely very much would that had the potential with some good expiration upside to dramatically change those economics and push the cost curve even lower to where it could be a build-all project at 250 or even $2 copper. So that was what attracted me initially. Uh, when Sam came in and I and I saw his plan and I saw the copper market starting to rise to $350, $4 and the stock was still not doing anything, that's when I really rolled up my sleeves, tapped into my network. Uh, you may have seen Pierre Baudouin, who's a CEO of Silvercrest. He's a guy that I have tremendous amount of respect for. He's a real mind builder. You know, there's a lot of PAs in the market that are not worth the paper they're written on, that are totally bogus, that have cost parameters that are completely out to lunch. So when I get involved in a development stage project, I'm, I'm honest enough and smart enough to know that I don't know what I don't know. So I typically tap into people that have built mines for a living and say, is this something that is logical to you? Is the PA reasonable? 
this is a part of the world you can build the mind without negative surprises. Pierre's the kind of guy when I talk to him, nine times out of 10, he hates what I show him because nine, times out, nine, ten, nine out of 10 PEA projects are never going to get built and they have fatal flaws that can kill them from day one. Pierre came back and said, this is a really buildable mine and here's why. It's in a great jurisdiction, existing infrastructure, power, roads, no need to build a camp because a, a town called Port Hardy, it's very close by that the workers could live in. You have deep water port 45 kilometers away. Previous mine, lots of infrastructure around that, BHP, Island Copper Gold Mine. So he said, Mike, in terms of CapEx overruns or blowouts that you see in projects like this, typically when you have to put in road and power and a camp and you're at 3,000 feet of elevation, that's when you have these big nasty surprises where your PA goes from 1 billion to 3 billion and now you've, you've destroyed your economics. The knowables here are very, very good and there's very little defining left to do of the project. So your, your scope changes are very limited here. And so your certainty on cost is much higher versus other billion dollar porphyry projects you might invest in terms of CapEx. And the expiration upside made it such that you could even drive the, the NAV or the upside of the project much higher while having more certainty on the cost control on the CapEx side, which gave me comfort that this was a mine. This is something that was buildable in a very good tier one jurisdiction to your point earlier, Matthew, of needing domestic supply. Trading at a $50 million mark cap, trading at 5% of its NPV, which typically a buildable mine should never be trading there. It'd be trading at 30, 40, 50% with NPV. So I saw significant stock price appreciation and you know certainty of a quality project the market was not recognizing as such. Was it a quality project or is it was good enough at the copper price when you invested? I mean, it, 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 this, is the, this isn't like a, a, a tier, tier one you know, stellar project. It's a low-grade bulk project. I mean, Sam, we've, we've, we've talked about that in the past. Yep. Do you think yep. perceptions are changing on that? So, so there's the other game changer that, that's happened since uh, the investment. Well, I mentioned the expiration upside. So Sam and the team did a fantastic job about a month and a half ago. And this, I don't think it's been recognized by the market, but it's a real game changer for the story is the Northwest Expo Discovery. So this is a 50 kilometer wide porphyry district that's been limited expiration. The current PA is defined from Hushimu, which is the, the main deposit, but they discovered Northwood Expo about a month and a half ago, which has four to five times the grade of the existing deposit in the PEA. So that's your, your million ounces of high grade, super high margin, starter pit, quick payback, whatever you want to call it. That that pays the bills. That that de-risks the project significantly. So yes, you're right. $3 copper, Matthew, would have been on the show saying this is not a project that's likely to get funded. I did see a super cycle for commodities. I saw copper demand increasing. I said a 4 or $5 copper, it's a heck of a cheap call option on a very quality buildable project that likely gets built in a, an up cycle for copper, which we're in now. But that Northwest Expo discovery is the game changer. You add a million ounces of gold on the front end of your project at a very high margin that can dramatically reduce your payback and increase your cash flow up front. That makes this project now competitive in a sub $3 copper world or close to it, which will attract the tier one kind of companies who say, okay, you've got the economics now, you've got the scale, and you've got the district level expiration to find more of these high grade pods over time. To further sweeten the pot, and so that's what's changed the project in my mind significantly. Okay, so how do you how do you how do you go on that? Go to on. To put it in context, yeah. To put it in context, right? And people also don't appreciate this fact, but you know, in indicated resources, we currently within our resource base um, have over four million ounces of gold in indicated. In inferred, we have an additional two point four million ounces uh, in, in inferred, right? And this is not including what Mike has just projected within our Northwest Expo. Uh, the difference is, as Mike said, what we're seeing in Northwest Expo through our eight, nine drill holes uh, is that we're getting grades that are 
above one gram per ton within the porphyry. The significance of this in, is, and I really don't want this to be lost, is the average grade for gold in copper gold porphyries is about half that. It's about 0.4 to 0.5 grams per ton. So this is truly a high grade porphyry system for which we're just scratching the surface uh, across this 50 kilometer district. So, you know, there's multiple ways you can look at this. This could be either be, you know, proof and evidence that across 50 kilometers of the same geological interpretation and alteration, we're getting extremely high gold grades, which has, you know, caused a, a lot of action around the companies like GT Gold and others that gold companies are focusing on because they have the gold and copper element. Don't forget that currently, our resource is defined by approximately 33% by revenue coming from gold. Uh, and 62% by copper, right? So this is a very attractive combination, certainly in this macro environment that Michael has just described. Uh, and we're looking to address the uh, preconceived notion that this is just a low grade, high tonnage area. That, that's uh, clearly not true. In addition, from a project economics perspective, uh, as Mike alluded to, this really has implications on you know many things, whether it's a starter pit, whether it's a smaller, high capital, low capital intensity, high IRR project, to potentially just informing you know, 100,000 ounces for the next 10 years of the larger project. That is going to be obviously assessed in the very near term. That's what we're focusing on, building the resource base around this and then understanding the implications of, of those various alternatives. And the great thing about this is it works in every point of the cycle, right? If we're in a part of the cycle where gold is at $1,700, $1, people are looking for low capital intensity, high uh, uh, returns, then this potentially can solve that problem. But if we're going into an environment that Mike has just described, and I fully agree with not only on the gold side, but on the copper side, then we actually are looking for big, meaningful copper gold exposures. This is top 10 in the world uh, for these types of projects that are not currently owned by majors, right? So this has that critical mass, the significance. We're talking about over 5 billion pounds of copper equivalent in just the resource defined today. So really, this, this spans across all cycles and really pops when you when you, when you consider the environment that we're currently uh, going into today. Okay, so here's, here's my question to you guys. Um, and, and maybe this is you know one, one for Pierre, actually, if he was here, which is you're still a $70 million uh, market cap company. Your share price has doubled since I saw you in September, to, to, to be fair. It's still a small small company. You are walking into, some some people call it a, a metal super cycle, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, gold's moving, everything's moving. You know, copper's moving. Um, do you change your behaviour? Because with small companies, you there's a tendency to get a little bit desperate and try and knee jerk and try and get things done quick to take advantage of the situation. Or have you got the ability to take your time and do things right? Sam. So, yeah. I think the answer is uh, kind of what I've been trying to, I guess, project over the last couple of conversations, which is optionality is key, right? How do you become relevant at any point of the cycle? And because this project has the qualities that it has, it has the levers that we have in front of us that you can pull at any given time at any point of the cycle. So what we have is a very big copper project with a massive gold credit, right? Clean concentrate, low arsenic, low deleterious elements, 
got infrastructure, all of the thing virtues that that Mike has just described. We've got extremely strong support of First Nation groups. We're looking to um, to advance a participation agreement in very short order, which is then going to uh, further dispel the idea that you can't uh, mine on the island. We all know that all a lot of these discussions, all roads do lead through these First Nation agreements. Um, so we're advancing that in quick order. Um, the the, the real essence and the, the, the trick here is to ensure that you have enough levers to essentially pull at any point in the cycle. So that is where I believe strongly we are going towards is that's part of the cycle where we will see, you know, a sustained level of very, very attractive copper and gold prices. We will see an insatiable demand, not only coming from the base metal producers, but also coming from the gold producers. As I said, real focus here within these gold uh, producers to associate themselves to, you know, other, you know, narratives outside of just gold. Uh, and, but having said that, we have this very, very uh, um, exciting discovery in Northwest Expo that really does appeal to less of an aggressive mindset, right? It's because it is higher grade. It's, it's, there's so many more options you could add on to our current project in addition to, you know, potentially higher IRR, um, lower capital intensity, uh, but it also is an add-on to the, the greater, uh, uh, the larger deposit. So, you know, I think to your point around pivoting uh, around uh, different um, parts of the cycle, I don't consider it a pivot based on where we are in a cycle. I consider it uh, where we actually feel we can get the most money and the most bang for our exploration and development dollars. And at this point, uh, currently, it's, it's advance the projects as quickly as you can and make sure we understand Northwest Expo uh, and, and Pemberton Hills, which is also another extremely uh, attractive and large uh, massive system that we have on our property. Right. And I'm not sure if you're, if you're under current of your question, Matthew, was, I thought about it too, right? Is you're a 70 million market cap with a billion dollar plus CapEx project. There we go. How, how are you going to move this forward without diluting the opportunity for your shareholders? That was probably the undercurrent of your question. And yeah. Sam, if you want to talk about one of the levers that we have in this project, especially now with this high grade gold discovery Northwest Expo is, is streaming. There's no royalties on this property. There's no there's no streams on this property. It's completely unencumbered, right? And so when you have these, these higher prices for these metals and there's strong demand for buildable projects with good IRRs, I know Sam, if you want to walk through a bit of the, just the hypothetical math on, on some of those, of those potential options, but there's ways to move this project forward methodically without having to do massively dilute a fundraise at, you know, 5% of NAV versus until the market recognizes the value. So Sam, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about those options that we have on the table or potentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no mystery to anyone that the royalties and the streamers have been extremely aggressive uh, over the past three, four months. And Matt, this is something I alluded to in our September conversation, but now we've actually come to see it come into fruition. Uh, where we see these um, royalty companies go after development stage projects, similar stage to where we've seen, uh, essentially giving a cost of capital between four to nine percent, uh, which is incredible, right? That is a very, um, uh, very impressive uh, and low cost of capital that is available to build development projects. Um, so, just to put that in context to what our project looks like, you know, if you were to put a uh, one you know, 100% stream, so 100,000 ounces of recoverable gold per year for 22 years uh, over the course um, of the life of mine at a 1650 gold price, $400 ongoing payments. Uh, that is essentially a $1.2 billion US 
upfront payment stream, right? And clearly, as I said before, we're not going to be doing uh, that entire stream, certainly today, and you know, probably and thoughtfully not throughout the course of uh, the project's life in its entirety, but that's available to us. That's one lever we can actually pull, whether it's through a stream or potentially a royalty financing, whatever it is, this is a huge component to financing a $1.1 billion project, which is, I would say, a medium capital intensity project, certainly from a copper perspective, from a gold perspective, I understand it's a little bit higher cost than a higher capital cost than what most people are comfortable with. The second really important theme that people perhaps forgot is that the off-takers, smelters, traders, they go after really high premium concentrate, copper concentrate, moly concentrate. And throughout the last 20 years, you've seen them aggressively go after projects as very constructive partners, bringing in very low cost of capital, JBAG bank financing associated to the strategic metal um, because it's a, it's rare. It's rare to see copper projects with such low deleterious elements, such you know high premium concentrates. And a lot of the projects much bigger than ours, quite frankly, that were financed as part of the last cycle um, we're through these offtake smelter uh, and trader agreements where you saw these partners coming, the Japanese coming at 20, 30, 40, 40% levels, bringing in JBEG debt, for instance, at sub 1%, uh, and then effectively the company using that equity infusion to satisfy their equity contribution for the project. Right? So this is a very, very tried, tested, and true structure, uh, again, for projects that are much, much bigger than a $1 billion, $1.1 billion. Uh, CapEx. Uh, and so that's something we can access. And the surprise that I have had, because typically these types of uh, um, agreements are usually at the feasibility stage uh, or pre-feasibility stage level, which is why we're trying to advance this as quickly as possible. Because the environment for these traders, smelters, off-takers have become so competitive. We saw Trafford Guru coming in the other day with a, uh, a deal with uh, Adventus. You know, because it's become such a competitive environment, we're seeing these new entrants into the into the market and going essentially earlier stage uh, for earlier stage projects. And so there has been uh, interest for preliminary economic assessment studies, and that's pretty much the starting point, uh, which is obviously something we've completed. So, you know, again, there's so many levers to pull from a financing perspective. Equity certainly is not something that we, you know, we are not going to, at today's prices, raise another cent to develop this project, right? That's that to me, it does not make any sense. We have access to a, a lot of other uh, sources of capital, including additional strategic investors, people that, and organizations that are aligned with our uh, collective objective as very large shareholders of this company. Uh, and that is just something that we're going to continue on, right? That's the, you know, part of the reason why I think uh, Mike's investment was very attractive to us. Uh, it's part of the reason, hopefully, why we were attractive to Mike is that there are a lot of really, really uh, interesting things we could do out there without over-diluting our shareholders. Why did you take the, why did you issue a half warrant with, the, with Mike and Pierce? Money? That's a really good question. So this, as you know, uh, was uh, something that I have never done before as part of my past fundraisings. Uh, no half warrants. That was, um, you know, I, I always believe that half warrant is essentially a cap uh, to your stock or can act as a cap to your stock, which was fundamentally the reason why I didn't do it in the past. The, if, you've, if you, you may or may not have noticed, but the offering that we did with Mike and um, Pierre were solely with Mike and Pierre. Okay. And so the comfort level that I had uh, with Mike was twofold. He, when he came and approached us, uh, I knew that he was a long-term shareholder because he has been uh, essentially a shareholder for the last year and a half. And he's proven himself through not only coming into straight common share offerings and plus 
uh, also buying shares in the market, that he does have that conviction. Um, he also has a very relevant precedent uh, to us in his strategic investment and uh, involvement with Arizona mining. Uh, and so this is a, again, this is a, a, a project that, you know, has, has historical resources, has something that you know, the market knows, but really has not, was not, un, was not appreciated in the market. Mike really was able to put his shoulder into it and make people understand the value proposition. And, you know, it's gone up almost 10 times over the last year and a half that he's been involved. And so it's this type of collaborative um, uh, relationship with Mike that I was very, very much um, interested in and, you know, had reasonably uh, less concern on issuing uh, the half warrant. Um, so, you know, I had, perhaps, you know, um, it's it's not something that we would consider doing on a regular basis, but I'm very, very convinced that this is these two individuals are long-term by nature, uh, and, which is why we actually didn't open it up because clearly there was, um, you know, many, many shareholders and including insiders that wanted to get in on this deal. And we, 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 ca we capped it because we, we knew that this was not the, uh, structure that we want to see generally moving forward. Okay, you've got a little bit of cash in, in the bank at the moment. You're not going to dilute shareholder at, the, at these prices, uh, you tell me. Um, what do you do with the cash that you've got, which advances this story or further? Because we've seen if, if some nice drill results come out, you know, say in, in, in January, you're talking about this high grade, high grade area. Are you going after that? Is that what's going to move the needle? Um, or is the market going to do the heavy lifting for you? Yeah, that's right. So Currently, a lot of the work in 2021 that we had set out to do that we've obviously fully financed for um, is still in the works as it relates to assays. So we're still waiting on assays on the Northwest Esco Zone 2, Zone 3. We're still waiting assays on Red Dog. We're still waiting assays on uh, South McIntosh, which is the area that's adjacent to Hushima uh, that we believe there's a, an extension to Hushima. We're still, and we're still waiting assays on some of the infill drilling that we've initiated on Hushman. So a lot of the activity, a lot of the drilling has already been done for 2021. We're just obviously subject to the backlog that everyone seems to be subject to in terms of these assay lives. In terms of 2022, the clear focus is to put a resource around our Northwest Expo um, project to essentially be able to speak very confidently and clearly as to not only what we think we have there, uh, but also how that actually informs the project uh, moving forward as well. So that's going to be a, a clear focus of ours. Pemberton Hills is, a, again, this a massive area that you know a lot of our shareholders have come into. This was a joint venture with Freeport. Um, uh, in the past, it is a huge system, three and a half kilometer, one and a half kilometer lithocap uh, that we drilled in 2021. And we didn't get through the lithocap uh, within uh, 100, 1,000 meters, excuse me. And so the disappointing thing is that we didn't get through the lithocap. The really interesting thing about this is that the system is massive. Like just to, to, to imagine how, uh, how big the system is because of the thickness and the size of the lithocap is quite extraordinary. The, what we did learn and what we do believe is that this lithocap is actually tilted tilted or the system is tilted towards the valley. And so what that means is that if uh, the deposit exists, you know, pretty much uh, coincident to the end of that lithocap, then we might be able to intercept it at the valley level, which is obviously about 700 meters, 700, 800 meters uh, below. Um, so that's work that we're going to continue through our IP, uh, our mapping as things that we can actually uh, add on uh, confidence that this is something that we uh, that, uh, that, that, that supports our thesis. Uh, and again, that could be the game changer uh, for, for the company. Um, and then in terms of the infill drilling around Hushimo, that's something that's 
clearly the next priority as it relates to moving this project into pre-feasibility study. Obviously, the focus is going to be, you know, not only infill, but seeing if we could expand on the higher grade zones, the core center higher grade zones with Anushmu, which BHP was looking uh, at mining initially. BHP was initially, this was pre-Escondida, uh, looking at taking that higher grade and essentially just trucking it 25 kilometers to their mill and then processing it at their mill. So that, that high grade exists in Hushimu. And so as part of our infill program, we're looking to expand that pretty significantly. We're also going to uh, advance our metallurgy around not only the Northwest Expo, but also the project itself. The, the key thing to understand here is even after a 50, it's essentially a gold around a pirate. So after even after a 50% recovery, you're getting 100,000 ounces of recoverable gold on an annual basis for 22 years. So think about being able to increase that recoveries to what you know BHP was looking at up to 70%. And then the key also is that what BHP see, saw as it relates to recoveries was that at the higher gold grades you had, the better recoveries, right? And so we're talking certainly at Northwest Expo with a gold grade of one gram per ton, we're talking about grades of five times higher than what BHP saw at Island Copper, which again, we hope the implication there is in a recovery of something you would expect to see as part of this deposit, like in around 70 to 80%. So that's a very key component to Again, value appreciation around the project, but also, you know, just showing that the system is, uh, is you know, ho holistically a very attractive opportunity to chase in 2022, which we're obviously doing. And then I guess finally, the, you know, the, the third concern that, you know, you've obviously talked to us about and many other investors talked to us about uh, is this license to mine, right? Do you have the permitting? Do you Can you permit something on the uh, north end of the island? Uh, and we're very close to obviously establishing uh, a, a participation agreement with our First Nation partners, which we think is going to be critical for people's understanding that the answer is yes, we have the support. This is a very industrial part of uh, the island. It, the northern part of it, it saw two major mines. It's forestry, it's industry. That is the the focus for the constituents, the, the communities and the First Nation groups in that area. And so to crystallize that as, as part of a participation agreement, uh, which is obviously a bridge to an IBA is something that I think is really gonna switch people's minds back on. Okay, and so and just Mike, this one for you, just I guess a final question really, which is you've, you've been invested, well, you're oil and gas, but more, you know, in, the, in recent years, uh, mining and you've seen companies grow what is it that they had about them how did they de-risk those projects what would what did they do right which you can introduce to this company yeah i think you start with the geology so like i said earlier if you have a buildable mine that that's key so you de-risk the geology or the the pathway to an economic production decision which i think we're on the path to do here you bring in the right people. So bringing in, we have a very experienced board we didn't talk about that are very experienced, very wealthy and very successful mining investors. Brought in a second generation of, of mining entrepreneurs and executives here with Sam and Nick and the team, Pierre Baldwin. We added Michelle from GT Gold. We've built, we've built a team now that brings the credibility saying, you've got a buildable economic proposition. You've got the, the team to take that farther along. And then a key thing for Michelle, which is I care about, Matthew, you care about a lot is in terms of returns is do you, how do you finance it? Do you finance it properly? Like you said earlier, you know, you don't you don't issue equity in your five percent NAV. Do you find non-dilutive ways to move the project forward, strategic partners, royalty streams? Because that really makes a big difference between having an $8 stock price at the end or a $1.50 stock price at the end. So it's the project, it's the people, and then the financing. If you get those three things right, and then the one we have to cross our fingers with is the market environment. If you have the, the up cycle at your back, 
that just adds turbocharged, you know, fuel to your, your upside return. But if you get all those three things right, which you can control, and the fourth element, which is a cycle with your back, that's how you can make 20, 30 times your money. And that's what I've been focusing the last five years of my life on is trying to do that and find these projects again and again as much as possible that have those kind of risk reward proposition for for shareholders.